is your name tag? Okay. Good morning, everyone. Um, so maybe just some admin uh, talk. Uh, as you all have noticed, we, we're running about 20 or 25 minutes late. Um, I'm told we can run over for that 20 minutes for this session, and some of the time will be made up through lunch or through some of the transfer times and so forth. But we, we'll see. We might be able to save some time here as well. So just to confirm, um, the, the session you are attending today is um, the, the life is a minute uh, arbitration and the actual quantification of, of constitutional damages. My name is Wim Lewitz, and I'm the, the chairman of the uh, ESSA Damages and Compensation Committee. Our speaker today is Mr. Greg Whittaker. Um, so, so Greg is also uh, sitting on the Damages Committee. Um, he's a fellow of the South African um, Society of Actuaries and also of the, the, the American Society of Actuaries. He's a well-known practitioner in the damages space. He's got over 20 years experience. For the last 12 years or so, he's been running his own practice. Um, he's also a trained mediator and he currently also serves as trustee to the Actuarial Society Education Trust. So I'd like to welcome Greg and th thank him for, for the paper. Um, I just want to confirm that there, there is actually a formal paper that was written. There's a, a slight error on the, the, um, the convention program. There's a P to the one, next to the one, one session preceding this one, but it should actually be in alignment with this one. So there is a formal paper for those of you that are interested in reading up a bit more. Um, so I'd like to hand, uh, hand over to Greg now. Uh, thanks, Greg. Thanks, Vim, and uh, thanks for uh, everyone that's come to attend. Okay, to start, if we if we turn back the clock uh, 366 days ago, if you were in. Johannesburg at, at the Parktown Emayeni uh, con uh, Conference Centre, there was an arbitration under, underway, and um, we were listening on that day to the testimony of, of three uh, people who had uh, lost loved ones. Um, the first person uh, that gave testimony that day was, was um, Lucas Mukhrane. Uh, his brother Christopher had been at uh, Life Emayeni facilities for 30 years. And uh, following the transfer out of those facilities, uh, he died within a month. Uh, similarly, um, the testimony of, of Lucibe Lechwabe, uh, his brother Motefela had been at Lafayette Domeni for 33 years, and he died within two months of being transferred out of that facility. Um, the last person to give uh, testimony that day, and, and it was actually being televised, uh, the, the, the entire hearings were televised on uh, SABC news and also on uh, EWN, um, the, the last person to give evidence that day was Ntomofuti Dudler, her brother uh, had died within a month of being transferred and uh, following a, a lengthy search um, for his body, they finally, she finally had to go and identify his decayed corpse. How did we get here? So just a brief description, Life is a, is, is, is a private facility that the Gauteng Department of Health were um, subsidizing to take care of psychiatric patients. Uh, that, that it was almost a sort of evergreen contract that had been in force for quite a few years, when actually, in actual fact, decades. And uh, in around about June 2015, um, the, there was uh, a rumor that uh, that contract was going to be canceled. 
So the South African Society of um, Psychiatrists warned of the likely consequences of suddenly moving people that had been at facilities for an extended period of time. And uh, they, they just warned against this before October 2015 when the Gauteng, the then Gauteng uh, uh, health, uh, head of health, or MEC for health, Kadani Mishlangu, announced that they were going to con uh, cancel the contract. Um, so between October 2015 and March, and uh, sorry, June 2016, there was a, a mass transfer of, of mental health care users out of uh, various life acidemia facilities in Gauteng. Um, the, the bulk of the transfers occurred between April and, uh, and June 2016. Uh, in many cases, uh, family members weren't even informed that they were moving their, their, their loved ones, and uh, by July 2016, fa families started to ask questions. Where, where, are, where, are, where are my where's, where's my family member? Uh, in August 2016, uh, one of the uh, uh, Christina Gumalu, she found out about the death of her sister, and when she started to investigate at this particular uh, NGO that she'd been transferred to, uh, she discovered that eight other patients had died. And then um, things started escalating from there. By uh, sep September 2016, following uh, questions from, uh, in, uh, in uh, the Gauteng provincial government, uh, the MEC announced that there'd been 36 deaths following the transfer of uh, out-of-life acidemia facilities. Um, the health minister immediately uh, requested the health ombud to investigate, and by January 2017, he had compiled his report and uh, asked the MEC for health uh, whether she would like to make any um, submissions. She asked for an extension, uh, and then the, the final report was released in, uh, on the 1st of February 2017. On, on release of the report, the MEC for uh, health resigned. So the report of the um, health ombud was the report into the circumstances surrounding the deaths of mentally ill patients in the Gauteng province. And there were a few major findings that uh, the health ombud made. Firstly, uh, between March 2016 and uh, December 2016, there were actually 94 deaths, not 36, as the MEC for Health reported. Um, all these people had been moved out of... Um, uh, the life is facility to non-government organizations uh, and all 27 of the NGOs and, uh, which to, to which they were uh, transferred actually operated under invalid licenses. So they were basically, to, to, to a large extent, a lot of these places were just sort of residential homes and all of a sudden were turned into an NGO so that they could get a subsidy from the Gauteng Department of Health to look after mentally, health, uh, mentally ill um, patients. Um, the health ombud found that the uh, mental health care users died under unlawful circumstances, uh, that the Gauteng Department of Health um, decision to transfer them was, was unwise and flawed, and that there was inadequate planning, and that the entire, the entire process was just uh, chaotic and rushed. Um, what happened in, in, in some instances, uh, buckies would arrive at the middle of the night, uh, just take mental health care users out of life is many that literally just tie them to the back of a bucky and ship them off to, to an NGO. And that's the kind of thing that was happening. So following that, the um, health ombuds, uh, one of, he made a, a number of recommendations, the uh, most important one of which uh, was recommendation 17, that an alternative dispute resolution process be established. And the uh, whole idea behind this uh, process was to 
to determine mechanisms of, of redress and compensations for and compensation for uh, affected family. So, prior to the commencement of the arbitration, um, the the state uh, made certain admissions. So they admitted liability. They said we we are guilty. However. And they also agreed to pay uh, some sort of compensation. So they said that um, they agreed to pay compensation to the mental health care users, either to individual families or as a group. Um, and they tendered an amount of 200,000 Rand for funeral expenses and um, general damages under the common law, which I'll, I'll get to a bit later. Um, the, the core dispute um, that the arbitration dealt with was uh, what is the nature and the extent of, of equitable redress for affected families. Um, here the claimants sought constitutional damages and it's a head of damages which uh, the state uh, strenuously resisted. Um, they said they weren't um, liable for constitutional damages. Uh, these people can be compensated under the South African common law. So the just to give you, uh, those who don't know, the common law is basically a law of precedent. So you basically build on previous decisions. Uh, for example, if there's a judgment that says the retirement age for a, a teacher is 65 uh, in a damages calculation, then you'll use that as the retirement age for future cases. So there's a, there's a whole body of um, common law, uh, which, which basically are, 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 is the way our law gets developed. Um, so if we turn to what are the damages available on, on unlawful death? So you have your, there's, there's common law claims. So you, there's three main heads of uh, damages that can be claimed there. Funeral expenses. Um, and then you can get general damages for emotional shock. So that uh, often then you need to have expert evidence to show that there is a, a, a link between um, the, the, the death and the uh, and the award um, for, for general damages. So basically, uh, a common one there is if, if somebody is, in the, is a passenger and the, the driver gets killed and they witness that happening, um, you often can get a, a claim for general damages um, arising. And then the third one is, the, is, a, is a claim for loss of support. So that's uh, a, uh, invariably the largest part of a, a compensation claim. And there you, you get a... a an amount that's linked to what the deceased was earning. So there, there's normally an actuarial calculation that flows from the third item where you will calculate a normal um, loss of support claim um, where you normally project the, 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 the deceased earnings and then you allocate a portion of the earnings to the, to the dependents and then um, calculate the capitalized value thereof. So um, that's normally the bulk of um, the claim in unlawful um, death matters. Um, but it did not exist in this matter because all of the um, deceased were uh, long-term uh, mental health care users. They, they weren't employed and they were never going to become employed. In actual fact, uh, yeah, well, the, 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 the range of ages of the, the people that died ranged from the age of 21 to 103. Um, so the thing to turn to then is, well, constitutional damages. So. There, um, a court can fashion a new remedy as, a, as appropriate relief. So you'll look to constitutional damages where the common law doesn't really um, cater for uh, any, any other loss. Um, so section, section 38 of the Constitution, it basically um, talks about the right to approach a court for appropriate relief um, if a right in the Bill of Rights has been infringed or threatened. 
So appropriate relief can take many forms, such as just an apology, um, and it can also take on uh, the form of actual uh, compensation. Um, to give you some of the examples of the uh, infringements of the Constitution that were mentioned by the, uh, the arbitrator in, in, the, in, the, in the final award, um, there was insufficient uh, rotten or no food at some of the NGOs, so some people just merely um, died of starvation. Um, the, uh, people uh, died of dehydration, they didn't have uh, clean water at some of the facilities. Um, some people were transferred without even uh, as much as an ID document, let alone uh, what medication they're taking. So they were denied access to medicine. Uh, in some cases, uh, people um, uh, died as a result of not having access to the, to the regular medicine that, were, that they were receiving at Life Is Domeni. Um, some, uh, some of the mental health care users were tortured, uh, abused. Um, there was insufficient um, bedding and blankets, uh, and some died from exposure to cold. The, a lot of the, the transfers occurred during the period from um, uh, April, the bulk of the transfers sort of occurred during winter in Gauteng from April to June 2016. Um, there was uh, abuse and, and a report of a rape at one of the facilities. And there was even um, denial of dignity and death. I mean, um, some bodies were just stacked up in an old um, butchery, uh, not being kept at the right temperature. Um, some were decayed beyond even um, being able to extract a fingerprint to identify the deceased. So uh, the, the scale of um, infringements was just, uh, you just, you just can't believe it's happened at this, in this day and age. So how does, this, how does South African case law help us regarding um, constitutional damages? Well, um, there's a well-known co case of foes, which basically dealt with, it was a basically a police brutality matter. Um, in, that, in that particular matter, the, um, the, the, the court ruled that the common law would, was broad enough uh, in many cases to deal with the damages suffered. So in that particular matter, um, the, uh, the person that was um, the victim was compensated for loss of earnings for general damages and so on. So there wasn't, they, they received the full extent uh, of their damages and they were placed in the same position as they would have been uh, had the assault not occurred. Um, but the, the Constitutional Court in that matter, they did expand it, but they said appropriate relief uh, me, must mean effective relief. So the reason for that is where so few um, people in South Africa have access to uh, or the means to enforce their rights, there needs to be another layer of protection. Um, and in this regard, courts need to uh, forge new tools so as to assist uh, people in these circumstances. So FOES just, uh, the matter of FOES just gave us some broad uh, constitutional uh, considerations, but then in terms of South African case law, there's only been two uh, matters where standalone um, constitutional damages have been awarded. Uh, the first case was the matter of Kate, which was a, a matter back, uh, dating back to the 1990s where um, a lady applied for a social grant in, um, I think it was in 1996, and they took three years to finally um, give her access to the grant due to just uh, maladministration. Um, and the court awarded constitutional damages there equal to the interest that she would have earned on the uh, social grant uh, had she received it in 1996. Um, in reality, as the court mentioned, she wouldn't, not, she wouldn't really have suffered any loss because, um, you know, she would have just, uh, because she was uh, in such dire circumstances, she would have just consumed the grant and would never have invested it. But they said, 
they came up with this concept of well, her loss is just as real as someone who could have invested the the amount the the, the, the grant. Um, they also mention in that matter that there's no that there wasn't any empirical um, monetary standard against which to measure to measure the loss. So. Um, it also sort of opened the way uh, for us where we have no, in, in our particular matter, where there was no real uh, common law claim for loss of support to just come up with some other way of, of, of finding compensation. Um, the only other matter on constitutional damages uh, was the Mordeclip matter, which involved the uh, unlawful occupation of a, of a farm in, uh, in, the, in the Davidson Benoni area. Um, it was, an, again, a very lengthy matter where um, the owners, the owners of the farm, repeatedly tried to uh, go through the correct channels to get uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, to get the uh, unlawful occupants off the land. Um, they, there were there were numerous rounds of, of court cases, um, all, all during which uh, the, the number of people that uh, occupied the farm just grew. It started off at like 400 and ended up at 15,000 by the time the final round of litigation was over. So. Um, there was just another illustration of just how slow the law was moving. Um, but a, a very important thing, a takeaway from the matter, is just the persistency of the, the complainant. Uh, and, and, and the same holds for the families of, of the victims in, the, in this matter. There was a lot of, there were some controversial comments made by, by, by certain uh, politicians about uh, why should these people get compensated? They didn't even care for their loved ones. Well, to the contrary, in this particular matter, the people that were compensated were the people that, that uh, formed um, family. Uh, there was a family organization. They, uh, there, were, there were a number of parties involved. Um, they, they could definitely not be accused of doing nothing. They tried all channels down to, uh, down to the courts, uh, which, which even denied them. So, South African case law, there's only two, two cases on constitutional damages. Uh, if we turn to international case law, uh, we'd look at first North America. The, uh, in America, obviously, we, we don't have punitive damages in South Africa. So, in, in America, they do. So, their um, punitive damages are really a punishment or deterrent. It's, it's often, well, completely unrelated to the actual loss incurred. Um, there's, uh, there's quite a big uh, body of uh, case law on, on nursing home abuse in America. In actual fact, I mean, there's attorneys that even specialise in just uh, nursing home abuse cases. And um, in two of the bigger matters, there, there was a matter of uh, Nunziata, where the, uh, it was a 92-year-old lady that was um, uh, she was left alone by a nursing staff while they took a smoke break, and then she she uh, fell downstairs and and, and died. Uh, and then the matter of Jackson that was uh, awarded $100 million to the estate. Uh, that was also a matter where um, the, pa the patient was abused by, by nursing staff. Um, all the, all, the only takeaway from, because we don't, our law is not developed to the, to the stage of punitive damages and unlikely to ever, to ever be so, um, is just the seriousness with which um, they view those types of offences. Um, the matter of, uh, there was a matter in Canada, the matter of Ward, um, uh, a brief uh, description of that matter. Basically, uh, somebody that was uh, attending a, a, a presidential talk, and there were rumours that he was actually going to throw a pie at the prime minister. But uh, he was incorrectly identified, uh, arrested, and uh, that led to 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 the, to the first uh, award for 
um, constitutional damages in Canada. Um, Canada is not like America. They're more a sort of Commonwealth-based legal system. So they just said vindication and deterrence should support the, the compensatory fa uh, function, unlike America, where it's, it's more uh, vindication. Um, they also, one of the principles, they also said that damages must be appropriate and just um, to the claimant and the state. So um, we were obviously um, cognizant of the fact that whatever sort of figure we came up in our matter, uh, that's going to have an effect on the overall healthcare expenditure for the, the Gauteng Department of Health. So why we, we can't sort of come up with a number that's going to be more than what the healthcare department would have spent on these people anyway. Um, so that was something in the back of our minds, and, and that was at least uh, set down in this, you know, that principle was at least uh, enunciated in this case. Uh, if you look at international case law uh, in the Commonwealth, um, a lot of these matters relate to um, the uh, torture or abuse of prisoners. So I'm not going to go through the details of each case, but other than we're just going to look at some of the principles that, 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 that come out of those matters. Um, in New Zealand, the matter of Tanawa, um, they, they also they sort of say that there is a relationship between vindication and compensation. So basically, uh, if, if the amount uh, to vindicate is, 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 is more than uh, the, the ordinary compensation, then uh, why, why, and you also need to do another sum looking at what's the amount of compensation versus how much. Uh, would it take to to vindicate the matter? You, you don't you don't want uh, one being more than well. We don't want a, a situation of double counting where you sort of sort of pay uh, two hundred thousand rand in, in or two hundred thousand dollars in in compensation when the ordinary award would have just been say a hundred thousand um, dollars. So they're very careful not to to pay more than what uh, can be afforded. Um, in that matter, also the. They said it would be astonishing if the circumstances in that case were to ever occur again. Um, the, you can read more about the detail in, in the paper. I won't go and don't have time to sort of run through the details of every single case. But um, the, the, the purpose of these cases is just to sort of point out some of the guiding principles that we that we used when we when we started looking at this case. Um, the, in the in the matter of Ramanup in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, the, the violation of the constitution, a violation of the constitutional right, adds an extra dimension to the wrong. It was the finding, um, and also that matter, just like this one, uh, was basically representative of an arbitrary abuse of state power. So, um, a common, a common refrain throughout the the hearing from from various um, health officials was was well, I didn't know, I didn't know that this was going to lead to deaths. We took a collective decision. The usual sort of stuff. Nobody taking responsibility in terms of the, uh, the which is actually, I mean, a, a administrative law is a major uh, subsection, which uh, was just ignored by uh, the, the various officials. They, an answer of "I didn't know" just doesn't uh, doesn't hold water when you have a when you are the minister of, of health in a province as big as Gauteng. Um, in the United Kingdom, uh, also the, one of the uh, matters of rooks, they, they also said the defendant shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be asked to pay more than what they're able to pay. 
Um, so there are financial constraints under which uh, any, the award would have been made. So a lot of the, a lot of the argument from the defense in the is it many matter was, well, state, you, you're diverting funds from the state uh, uh, spend on health care, and uh, we just uh, can't afford this. Um, we also looked in, uh, into um, torture legislation. So there are various uh, um, standalone um, uh, legislation re regarding torture in Africa. Some countries, South Africa has a, a Prevention and Combating of Torture of Persons Act. So there's, um, however, that act doesn't expressly deal with uh, compensation for, for loss of support. It's, ba it's, it's basically just based, it just incorporates the uh, UN Convention uh, against torture and other cruel, uh, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. So it just basically just echoes uh, uh, that UN Convention, which basically just says that there needs to be some uh, compensation for victims of torture. They don't set out exactly what that compensation should be or how it's to be calculated. Um, so the South Africa does have a standalone act. A lot of countries just merely rely on the UN Convention. Um, Uganda does have a, have a standalone act. Um, they provide for um, economically accessible damages, such as lost opportunities, uh, they apply for, uh, they um, provide for rehabilitation um, and restitution. So it includes uh, payment for for harm or or loss suffered. So um, some some countries have developed uh, more specific things under which that you can get compensated. Um, if one looks at uh, torture legislation in Asia, there's various um, countries that do have uh, 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 standalone acts. The Maldives, they, they, they allow for economic and non-economic compensation. Um, the Philippines, uh, all victims of torture have a right to claim compensation, and they've got a minimum of 10,000 uh, pesos, pesos as an award, but that's uh, not, not a particularly high amount. Um, and then Nepal's got quite an advanced um, uh, quite advanced torture legislation um, where they look at a variety of aspects under which you can get compensated, uh, physical and, uh, and mental pain suffered. Um, they look at, uh, they relate the, the losses to the earning capacity and the expense of treatment. Um, and then in the case of death, uh, interestingly enough, they look at the minimum amount for the dependent's livelihood and there they don't rely on whether the person's working or not. So that was a good uh, point for us because we have a, a whole body of uh, deceased, uh, none of which were employed. So there we could say, well, hang on, uh, we can start looking at perhaps uh, living expenses. What's, what's the minimum amount? Um, so actuarial involvement, how does it come about? There's a well-known matter, appeal court matter of Southern Assurance versus Bailey, where the um, judge talks about two approaches to um, granting um, compensation. The, ones that, the one is that a judge can just use their gut feel, just sort of thumb suck a number and off you go. Uh, the other one is to, is to uh, look at mathematical calculations, which are on a more logical basis. And what, what really paved the way for actuaries in the, the damages space to a large, large extent was this particular judgment where um, this is the reason why uh, the courts prefer actuarial calculations in support of um, damages claims. Um, so in assessing constitutional damages, it's, it's obviously not a straightforward loss of earnings um, calculation, as I explained, but um, 
I had an approach from Section 27, uh, which was one of the, uh, it's, a, it's a non-profit uh, uh, legal uh, group that uh, was defending many of the, uh, well, taking care of many of the families of the deceased. And uh, they came to see me in about 2016 and they said, well, how can we go about assessing compensation for these people? Um, the families didn't really want to present a thumbsuck figure when they, when they went to uh, arbitration. But we also knew whatever compensation was going to be uh, awarded would, would have to be um, rooted in the constitutional values of, of equity and fairness. Um, so what, a starting point we used um, for the calculations, well, what, simply what's the cost to maintain the mental health care users at uh, life is it of any? In other words, pretty much tantamount to their living expenses. Um, one can draw a parallel to other uh, aspects of law where um, sometimes actuaries are asked to work on uh, matters where, um, referred to as wrong, wrongful birth matters, where there's a failed sterilization and then uh, the uh, further child is born and then the parents claim um, damages for the cost of living of that unwanted child. Um, so uh, in that sort of case, it actually would just value the, the, living the future living expenses of, of the child. And we thought, well, there is some sort of parallel to be drawn with uh, mental health care users where we, we, we know what, at least know what their living expenses um, are. And we just thought, well, if you apply a common law principle, you, you normally always put the, uh, the claimant in the same position as they would have been had the, had the death not occurred. We can just flip that around and put the state in the same financial position as they would have been um, had the unlawful deaths not occurred. Um, so in other words, what we were, we were look, thinking of there is that these unlawful deaths basically resulted in an unlawful saving to the state. So that formed a good uh, starting point for, for the calculations. Um, we, yeah, we, we, got, we got quite a lot of data from um, Section 27, so we had de details on uh, the, the number of... Another thing that came out, and it's probably true of most government departments, those of us who do work for like, uh, like women I, like the state attorney, et cetera, often the, the data is really uh, poor quality. And uh, there was no, no difference in this matter where uh, we, were, we were like wholly reliant on, on Section 27 to get us the, all the dates of birth, but even so, like five were missing. So um, we had to make some assumptions. Um, the... As I mentioned earlier, like the, the oldest person to, it's almost unconscionable, but the oldest person to die and that was transferred all of a sudden was 103 years old. Uh, just uh, unfathomable how you could do that. But um, the, the, the subsidy paid by the, um, the Kharteen Department of Health in respect of the mental health care users was um, 320 rand per patient per day. That was in the 2015 financial year. And then we just, uh, we just projected that uh, uh, per, uh, per deceased. Um, we, we had to get a handle on just the mortality of psychiatric patients, um, but to start with, we just wanted some other underlying mortality table. Um, we looked at a few sources, um, the 84-86 table, uh, that is the last uh, full um, life table and still used quite extensively in um, damages claims today, and it's, the argument there is it's one of the first tables pre, uh, well, it's, it's the last table sort of pre-HIV AIDS. Um, but we, we thought that uh, given the nature of the, 
of the underlying population, we, one would have to make some provision for HIV, uh, HIV AIDS mortality. So there were three different sources. We looked at the Rapid Mortality Surveillance Report, um, the Statistics Africa Major Estimates, and then we looked at the Tembisa model. So we ended up using the uh, Tembisa model projected to 2016 um, as, as, our, as our sort of like underlying mortality table. Um, then we, well, we, we, we didn't have uh, details of each of uh, the conditions that each of the, dece uh, the deceased had. So like, you know, there were a mixture of patients, some uh, were uh, bipolar, some were schizophrenic, etc. So there was a whole mix, but we just, because there was just such a, uh, a lack of record keeping um, across the board, like we didn't, we didn't even know what uh, the diagnosis for some of these people were. So we couldn't really do it on an individual basis, and we thought, well, it's better to just look at an aggregate sort of uh, mortality basis. And the first study that we looked at, there's only, actually only been one paper on the um, mortality of psychiatric patients in South Africa. It was the Kamka study. Um, but that paper wasn't really useful because the subsidy that uh, it was based at Vescopies, and the subsidy that they receive is, is significantly higher than the subsidy at, uh, that, uh, that Life is Domeni were, were receiving. So, uh, we couldn't really use that, um, and also that paper found that the um, standardized, standardized mortality ratios weren't uh, statistically significant, but I think that was really as a result of, you know, it, they were comparing it to a fairly heavy uh, table of mortality at that stage. It was a paper in the 90s uh, when uh, estimates of the impact of HIV AIDS were much higher than what they are now. Um, we probably couldn't have um, Done anything had it not been for the CEO of the, of Life Is Many, who in a media report mentioned how many deaths had occurred at the um, facilities prior to this mass transfer. So, from October 2011 to September 2015, um, we we had an, an idea of how many deaths there were, and we related that to the uh, the, the Life Care Annual Health Reports, and we were, we were able to just arrive at a fairly rough. Uh, um, uh, st uh, mortality ratio for uh, various occupancy rates. Um, we also just ran through some of the international studies on psychiatric disorders. Um, those of you in, in, in insurance will know uh, Breckenridge's medical selection of life, life risks. So that was a pretty useful um, reference. Um, but again, all of these sort of things only, only take you so far because um, we didn't have a, a, a diagnosis per patient. So we just went with a, a extra mortality loading and did a, a sort of aggregate calculation. Um, just running through, the last ingredient was just the, uh, the net discount rate to apply just to calculate the capitalized values. We, we looked at, um, uh, we sort of systematically went through various things such as, well, we don't have a, a legislated net discount rate in South Africa. Uh, there's no fixed rules. Every every case really depends on the evidence before it. Um, recent case law discount rates have ranged between minus 0.3 to 3%. Um, we did a survey in 2015 of practitioners, about 20 actuaries in the damages space, which is pretty much everybody, um, was about uh, using an average discount rate of about 1.75 for medical expenses. Uh, we looked at other areas such as the Pension Funds Act where there are um, uh, discount rates that are, you know, a pre-retirement discount rate is legislated and uh, at least that gave us a, a good feel. 
we just looked at other countries. Uh, the UK, they sort of mandate a, a minus 0.75 uh, discount rate. America's pretty much uh, similar to South Africa, where you generally look at the evidence in each case. So they often rely on economists to get evidence. Um, Canada has, a, has numerous, uh, each province has a different uh, net discount rate, uh, ranging from zero to three percent. Um, Australia is the anomaly. They, they, ma they mandate for, uh, extremely high discount rates for damages claims, ranging from five to eight um, percent. But they, they do that just for uh, what they claim sustainability purposes. Um, Hong Kong has, has a graduated uh, sort of net discount rate, um, ranging from uh, I think it's 0% for the first five years, going up to 2.5%. And uh, Bermuda also has a, a negative discount rate for, for damages claims. Um, we decided to just go with, uh, we, we, we showed a whole range of discount rates, ranging from like 1.5 to 2.5. And we also showed um, the impact of various uh, mortality loadings. Um, from our analysis of the, the extra mortality at uh, life to many facilities, the middle uh, column was the, was the most appropriate uh, with the loading of 120%. So in terms of the group of people that we had, there was about uh, the average age was, uh, was of the order in the 50s and the normal life expectancy of the group would have been about 21 years and our loading resulted in roughly a seven-year um, reduction in life expectancy. So we were quite comfortable with that and our sort of average, average figure at a net discount rate of two and a half was basically an average the government would have paid roughly one and a half million per um, deceased had they not had they not died. Uh, just to quickly run through the, the arbitration proceedings, the um, section 27. There were, there were, it was a bit of a different uh, different compared to your normal uh, matter in court, where there's normally just a plaintiff and defendant. In this case, there are a number of parties that were being represented. So section 27 re re represented 63 uh, of the deceased. Um, her dismissed attorneys represented four claimants, and those four claimants were actually uh, moved out of an NGO to make way for uh, um, the other uh, people that had been transferred from life as many and then died. And then Legal Aid South Africa represented some of the survivors, um, but, uh, and then the defendant of the state was represented by Worksman's attorneys, and then the arbitrator was the um, former Deputy Chief Justice of South Africa, um, Justice Dikam Wasaneki. Um, the arbitration proceedings ran for uh, 45 days altogether. Um, 60 witnesses took to the stand. I gave evidence uh, on the 30th of November um, last year. And then on the 19th of March, the government um, was ordered to pay a million rand to each of the, the claimants in constitutional damages. So in, they actually, uh, the question is, well, have they ever paid the money? Well, they actually did. In June, they paid the money. So they paid 159 million rand. Um, in damages to the claimants in respect of this action, but I believe now there's about another 200 claimants that are coming forward. Um, we did all of this work on a, and I did all of this matter on a, on a pro bono basis um, because I've, I've had a fairly long standing relationship with um, Section 27, so we've helped them on quite a few matters over the years. And um, yeah, just sometimes you just feel so, uh, something like this you just can't charge for. Um, it's, it's important to do pro bono work as actuaries, I think, um, without, without experts, really uh, public impacted litigation can come to a halt. Uh, attorneys that are working in uh, these various uh, NGOs, such as Section 27, have extremely limited resources, even though they, 
and they're working on so many matters. I mean, the, the amount of litigation in this space is, is enormous, and uh, there's a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of things that are being fought. Um, I was involved in the um, that Michael Kumape pit toilet drowning matter in Limpopo, where again, um, well, the we actually lost that matter in terms of constitutional damages. The courts refused to award anything, but that matter has actually been taken on appeal. Um, it's going to the Supreme Court of Appeal. Uh, we're hoping it'll, that they'll reverse that decision now that we have a precedent in, in life is de many. Um, but there have been uh, numerous other pit toilet uh, deaths since then. And I mean, I don't know, the statistics are astounding if you look at the number of pit toilets that are still used in places like Limpopo and the Eastern Cape. There's some schools, there's, there's literally thousands that are still in operation. So there's just the breakdown of spending on basic uh, education infrastructure. Um, we were involved in the, the norovirus outbreak uh, matter at Charlotte Maxeka Hospital, where six, six, six children died. We worked, we do, we worked for some of the uh, law firms involved there. And then there was an interesting matter that um, Roseanne was involved in um, with the South African Social Security Agency against the uh, Line of Africa Life Insurance Company, and they, uh, as a result of, of the work that she did um, for Black Sash, uh, who joined as a friend of the courts, they um, no longer allowed to deduct uh, funeral uh, insurance from um, child support grants. So uh, that was a very important case. Um, just quick, some pro bono tips. It's always good to get a clear brief and state your assignment clearly. It's just normal good housekeeping for actual reports. Uh, it's important to, to have peer review. And luckily, uh, I mean, I asked a few senior actuaries such as um, Gert and uh, Van Linda and Johan Bortke to just read through my reports, see if I missed anything. Um, it's important to get people to, to have a look at what you've done before you send it out. We did have, I communicated with some of the authors of some of the journal papers just to find out more about mortality of psychiatric patients. Um, but it's also important to maintain your independence, just like any other expert witness work. Um, it's easy to get very emotional about a matter like this, where it's just, uh, you know, just uh, full-scale, um, just, just the extent of, of, of what happened is just uh, unconscionable. So you can get very emotional, but it's better not to. You, don't, you never assume that that's the job of the advocate. They will take on the case. and. In, in court, and also, I never thought I'd end up giving testimony in this case because uh, I thought, oh, well, I've done it for free. It's now my work's over. Then you get the call, and then you're on. Uh, it's a bit, bit difficult being on uh, giving evidence before 11 uh, cameras and being on on TV and all that kind of stuff, giving evidence. But uh, luckily, um, I survived it. <laughs> um, just in closing, and I wanted to just quote. Um, something that um, Justice Mosaneki said about the um, former health minister, uh, well, the former MEC for Health in Gauteng, Kadani Mishlangu, he said the following. He said her overall conduct in relation to the marathon project was irrational, inexplicable, highly reckless, and led to the death of at least 144 mental health care users. Um, she acted with impunity, thinking she will get away with murder, because the users and their families were vulnerable and poorly resourced. Um, yesterday, if any of you attended Jeremy Gardner's session, um, he 
mentioned towards the end that uh, hopefully there will be a lot of arrests of um, political uh, various uh, politicians and, and, and corporates involved in, in corruption. Um, shortly after the conclusion of the trial, we saw this picture. So we hope, we hope it'll start with uh, Kadani Mishlangu. Thank you. Thank you very much, Greg. We'll now open for questions. Uh, is there a roving mic? Yeah, up front. Thanks for the presentation, Greg. Um, I think for me personally, it's a bit of an emotional issue. Um, I read your paper like literally five times, you know, uh, even in the plane coming here. Uh, send it to almost every colleague that I've seen, even in the party last night, uh, drumming them to read it. So, Thank you. Uh, I think um, what, what really strikes me um, is the Michael Komapi issue. I thought about it and I was personally ready to take it on court appeal, you know, um, because I, I see there's a legal prison, a court prison, actually, and it's gonna, it's gonna work. But, you know, sometimes, the governments can be extremely funny people. And in your conclusion, there's something you, di you didn't put which in the paper you put. And I think we need to think a little bit harder about it. And, us, and, and why you said that we need to compensate them to the extent to which the state would have expended whatever cash flows to them. So for that, I think I just want to pause it a little bit and say, fine. But sometimes governments can spend education on me or whatever services on me, which actually might not actually be fair, you know. So if we put that statement and these things become a court precedent going forward, etc., etc., so it means actually governments or the states in future can get away scot-free with certain things, for example. And I think what makes me say this is that in the kind of work that I'm fulfilling these days, uh, in this kind of like uh, sp uh, spectrum, uh, I'm seeing claims actually which are coming back from as far back as apartheid days, for example, you know. And then I was like, mm, so wait a minute. So if, for example, I'm to, someone is to come today and claim for constitutional damages, and then we use the cash flows, which were, for example, back in the days, 1980, whatever. So if we were to project using those cash flows, actually that wouldn't be a fair and equitable redress. So in terms of the conclusion that you had in your paper, I'm just saying that's just something that we can think about going forward. Any further questions or comments? Roseanne? Thanks, Greg, and um, thanks for the presentation as well as for representing the profession so well in terms of, um, I know that you were anxious about how it would be, the input of the profession would be represented at the hearing, and I think you did it really well, so we are all in your debt for that. Um, I guess I, 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 my point is just about kind of closing the loop and, and perhaps um, as, as, a, as a next step in this, I was actually at the offices of Section 27 um, a couple of weeks ago and, um, and Sasha was telling me about how they're now assisting the, um, the, the families who have received um, this compensation and I think it's that's another interesting aspect for us to think about in terms of these cases that you know the story has not reached its end yet and um, you know I was thinking about 
the opportunity for there to be a difference made to the families in terms of you know the education that that can pay for and what that means actually to future generations for these families. I mean, it's actually really humbling to think about it that way, but that's a big role that, um, that, that we can play. And I guess, I don't know if you've had any engagements with the... Um, you know, with the NGOs in terms of um, who are assisting the families of how this money is used and maybe that's something that we need to be thinking about in terms of how we can assist because financial literacy and so forth is one of the things but also being sensitive to, you know, what the, what the needs of, of these vulnerable families are. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I think, like, um, it's all very, you, know, you, can't, you can't just sort of, well, you got your million, off you go. Like, you, you need to manage that money properly and... Uh, yeah, a huge amount can be done there still. Not, not, nothing's really done at the moment. Greg, thanks for listening to you. I've read uh, the, the reports or the papers before it was used. What struck me when I read through the paper is the systematic way that you addressed the, the whole issue. And I, I would advise all actuaries to read the beginning of paragraph 6, uh, the Judge Nicholson's uh, comment on actuarial, uh, using actuarial calculations. I think it's uh, imperative that all actuaries should read that. Further, also the systematic way where you analyze the various actuarial assumptions, mortality and discount rates, and the way you've used it. I've read it unemotionally, but I know it's an emotional issue, but the systematic way that you've addressed it is the success of this paper. Thank you very much. Hi, Greg. Um, thank you so much for the talk. Um, you're really doing incredible work. Um, just from my side, um, I wanted to ask how one can get involved um, as a young member in the insurer profession. Um, yeah, I think I'd like to add value. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, well, I think all the actors should do some. Uh, look, if you look at other, other disciplines, such as uh, like attorneys have to do 24 hours of pro bono work a year. Um, yeah, why, why should we be any different? Uh, we, sh we should be. I mean, we, we, we can all afford it, I'm sure, uh, to just uh, give back. And there's various ways you can do it. I mean, you can contact. Uh, there's a lot of very good organizations out there, such as uh, probono.org. Um, they actually have offices at the Constitutional Court in Bromfontein. Um, they have, uh, they have re regular, they've got various clinics. They run things like housing clinics and uh, there's a lot of there's so many matters I've had I've had requests in, in the past from just matters where um, disputes around insurance and uh, that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of uh, places where you can help people who really need it. Thank you. Uh, yes, I echo the the thanks uh, to Greg for the excellent work he's done. Um, th there's an aspect of this that, that I've had a similar experience where you as an actuary are working really on the frontier of actuarial work in, in that 
um, gray area between actuarial and legal. And um, lawyers and judges are, t are tempted to turn around and say, stick to your knitting. You know, this, this is legal work, this is not actuarial work. Um, but I think quite the opposite. I think you've, you've done the right thing, but I'd like to hear if you have any comments on or can describe you know, exactly how you, you tr tr trod that very difficult path of saying the profession has something to offer here, but I'm not actually trying to uh, behave as a lawyer because I'm not a lawyer. So that's a that's a great question because that was actually the crux of the of the defence's cross examination of me. They kept on trying to get me on legal um, things, and they they said to me, "Well, what's the actual purpose of your report? Why are you here? Um, why have you calculated funeral expenses?" I said, "No." Have you calculated a loss of support claim? I said, "No." Have you calculated general damages? I said, "No." So then they said, "Well, have you calculated constitutional damages?" Um, which was a which was a very good question, and I sort of I didn't answer that. That I, that I had, I just said I've, be, I've been asked to do a calculation, which I'm sure will be used in argument. Um, so it is very difficult uh, to get, you know, they, I think their approach is very good in terms of trying to draw me into, I'm an actuary and I'm saying you should award constitutional damages. All we merely did was just put a number forward and sometimes, it's, sometimes the purpose of actual evidence or is just to plant the seed. And, uh, and then, you know, obviously he liked the number in the end. Thank you. Uh, maybe to Mickey's point and also to the question before that about getting involved, that um, I think it is important to recognize that we're part of a team when you're involved in these kind of, of, of cases. Um, I mean, in my case, it's often been through um, the Center for Applied Legal um, or the, the Cals, Health, yeah. the, what they call it, Cals, Cals Center yeah. for Applied Legal Studies at WITS. And um, so they approach me, you know, when they have a, when they need a calculation. And so, um, you know, our role is obviously you brainstorming a little bit with the, with the team in terms of what the approach is, but our role is, is very much our knitting, which is, which is the, the finding the number as opposed to necessarily making the legal, the legal argument. So I guess it's important to see it as being part of a, of a team. But I guess to the question of getting involved, um, I think those kind of legal centers is, is quite a good place to, to get involved. But of course then I would encourage you if you're a younger member wanting to get involved in these things, then maybe also engage with um, actuaries who have done this work you know, so that you can perhaps be involved in a few of, of their projects and then, you know, that will help to, to build your, your skill set um, in terms of then being able to, um, to, to assist so we can kind of learn from, learn from each other. Um, because I guess there's the, the professional promise part of it as well. But I'm, I'm really encourage everyone to, to, to get involved and give back this way. I perhaps just also want to add to that. <clears throat> Greg has also started an incentive for uh, damages actuaries to be involved as assessors to the court. So that would basically be, mean where a judge <clears throat> is not too sure about some of the actuarial issues that are at play. There might be a, an actuary representing the plaintiff and an actuary representing the defendant, but they are on those respective sides. The court might have uh, a need for ind independent actuaries to assist them, uh, where there has been a call for damages actuaries. But thinking of it, there might be <clears throat> scope for 
all actuaries with, with various sorts of skill sets to be involved in that, that role. It might be a court case involving a pensions matter or an insurance matter, and the court might have need for independent actual advice in that regard, so it might be something we could look at. And I also think that, uh, if I remember correctly, there's a, a consultant list from ASA going out every year, and on that list you can tick the box whether you are willing to do pro bono work, and there might be something that comes your way uh, through that route. Yeah, any, any other questions? It looks like we, we can wrap up this session. I want to thank Greg, and I just want to echo some of the sentiments again. I think thank you very much for the good paper that you've, you've written. I would highly recommend everybody go and read that paper. I've personally also been, already been able to reference that paper in one of my court cases just for the good uh, survey that Greg has done on the net discount rate. Um, also in the broader context of the pro bono work that you, you do and the lead that you take in this regard, and uh, thanks from the profession side. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for attending. Um, I've just also got a, a further admin announcement. We are running late, so what is being done is that um, all these sessions will be shortened by five minutes, the tea break as well. Lunch will be shortened by 10 minutes. So for those of you that want to jot down, I've got the, the new times for the, for the subsequent sessions. So we'll, we'll go into the, the uh, refreshment break now, and then the next concurrent session will be from 12.05 to 13.00. Lunch will then be 13.00 to 13.50. The next con concurrent session will then run from 13.50 to 14.45. After that transfer time, 14.45 to 14.55. And closing will then be 14.55 to 15.55, followed by the linger longer session. I do have a, a written down here as well. I'll leave it here for those of you that want to come and take a, a photo or something. Thank you very much for attending. <laughs>